A letter to the Ephesians chapter 2 guests. A great place. This is a great place to begin to study the Bible. If you didn't bring one, all you need to do is Google Ephesians, if you know how to spell that, and the number 2, and the initials ESV, English Standard Version. That would be the version I'm reading from, the translation. The letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following under the translator heading Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ. And as you find your place this morning, we pause from our study of Galatians one more week to do what I hope will become that regular pattern for us. And, and, and it would include one annual sermon regarding the splendor of the local church. The splendor of the local church. The visible church. The bride observed and heard and experienced through the day-to-day life and witness and ministry of a particular congregation like us or whatever church you belong to. If you are visiting here, the church, a new humanity set on display like a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand or a lighthouse set high on the cliffs of a treacherous coastline. The church, listen, she's something to behold if you have not considered. Battle scars and all, the bride... For the Son of God, who, who, listen, who, who would or could cast aspersions upon her, the church, to defame her, malign her? She, we, are the one, the ones he loves and lives for and is waiting for. Waiting for at the consummation in the end. This morning, God God is inviting us to see us. God is inviting us to see us, the church, the way He sees us, through His lenses. Have you ever seen a groom, right? Have you ever seen a groom catch his first look at his new bride in her wedding dress? It's my favorite part every time. The thrill, that's what we're after this morning. The thrill, a fresh first look at the local church. For as I read recently, And I believe this. There is nowhere else on earth that you will be nearer to heaven. I believe this. There is nowhere else on earth that you will be nearer to heaven, the church. So would you look with me at our passage? We could pick from many passages throughout the Scriptures this morning. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse just 19. I'll read to the end. And then pray, follow along, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. 
the very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer that we might understand them? Father, Father, what a wonderful set of sentences we have before us this morning. A wonderful set of sentences full enough of grace to last a lifetime. We'll never plumb the depths of your love. But please show us again the glory of your Son manifest in your plan to establish your church. We are your church. And to do this one man, woman, child at a time. Do this, we pray. Convince us of it. Show us your Son. Fill me with your Spirit. May your Spirit meet us here as we hear your words proclaimed and our hearts receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> the church is beautiful. The church is beautiful. This is the first sentence of, a, of Dustin, I think it's Benji or Bengi's new book about the beauty and the glory of the church entitled The Loveliest Place. I recommend it. He writes, the church is beautiful, first sentence. Second sentence, beautiful is not a phrase we often associate with the church. Words like organization, mission, vision, and even body come to mind, but not beautiful. We like helpful organizational charts, don't we, that describe the purpose and function of the church. We want to place her members in properly assigned roles and duties. We underscore the qualifications and responsibilities of church leaders. We emphasize the church's theology and mission among the nations. We even pinpoint and seem to critique her problems and failures endlessly, don't we? He keeps writing, we, we consider what the church can give us and do for us, how she can serve us, and even what is in it for us, but rarely do we enjoy the eye-opening and soul-stirring truth that she is beautiful and lovely in just being who she is. He continues, the church has played a central role in many of our lives. That's true. She has nurtured in times of grief, shepherded in valleys of despair, and instructed in seasons of growth. We love her people. We love her ministries. We love her worship. We love her teaching. We love her comfort. But, but, he writes, do we love her? Do we love her? Does, does your heart swell? with deep and abiding affection at the mention of her name and the prospect of dwelling in the company of her people. Do you love the church for what she does for you? This is the question. I pray God moves us along, all of us. Do, do you love the church for what the church does for you? Or do you love the church for who the church is? I know for some of us, beautiful and lovely are not the first words that come to mind when we, think of, when we hear and think about the church. Perhaps you've been hurt by the church, burned by the church, disappointed by the church. Your relationships with the local church have been complicated, to use a euphemism, not always the best experience. And to some degree, this is true for all of us. It's true for all of us, some more 
unfortunately, some less. But the, the same since the very beginning. Keep in mind that a large portion of the New Testament, even the book of Ephesians, was published in response to some of the very worst messed up local church situations you can imagine. Churches are made up of broken, sinful people who break things by sinning against people. That we all, listen, so now we all give and take. <laughs> yet, yet, yet it's been said many, many times, and it's true, that the church is the dearest place on earth. I'm sure some of you heard that phrase, the dearest place on earth. It's from an old preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who in 1891 was in London, England. He was preaching a sermon, and they're all recorded for us, or most all of them are recorded in books. You can buy them or read them online. And here he said, the church, the, called the church the dearest place on earth. But catch the context here. If you've never heard the context in that sermon, listen, he writes, or he was speaking, he said, you are you that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I, speaking of himself, had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, the perfect church, if I had found one, a perfect church, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. And this is what this is now. Now here's the sentence. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. He continues, as as I have already said, Charles Spurgeon, the church is faulty. That's where that, this quote comes from. But that is no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's, nor need for your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people. Amen? 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 <laughs> the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. Man. The church, I love this, is a nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It's the fold for Christ's sheep. It's home. The home for Christ's family. Can't pretend that the church is perfect, but just as important, we cannot afford to lose the thrill of who the church is in the first place. And so from our text this morning, three statements about the church, about us, that remind us, Sovereign Grace Church of Orange and all faithful churches, remind us that for each and every person who has been reconciled and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we have been transmitted from one reality to another and now find ourselves part of something bigger than ourselves. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. We are a kingdom, Paul writes. We're a kingdom. We are a family, he describes us as. We're a family. And best of all, we are a temple. 
We are a temple. We are, listen church, we are part of something bigger than ourselves where all of God's presence and promises and purposes are unveiled for a watching world to view and eternally realized. It's all happening here in a local church. So consider again the splendor of the church. First point, we are a kingdom. Do you see ourselves this way? We are a kingdom. Look back with me again at verse 19. Consequently, Paul writes, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now stop right there. Consequently, as in because of or as a result of, right? As a result of what? The mighty saving work of Jesus Christ, whom the Apostle Paul had just elaborated on for two whole chapters, culminating in just prior to our text, a powerful statement, perhaps the most powerful, poignant statement on the reconciling effects upon our relationship both with God and with one another. Jesus himself is our peace. Paul writes, he has made the two groups one, he writes. Talk about racial reconciliation and tension. Talk about division. Paul says in verse 15 that at the very heart of the purposes of the Son of Man is to create in himself one new humanity. That's what he says. One new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace, Paul writes, and in one body to reconcile both of them to him, to God, through the cross by which he put to death their, our, your hostility. You see, Christianity is not just about you. You, it's not just about you. That's a far too small way of thinking about this. Christianity is a we experience. It's a social experience at its root. A shared experience. Of course, He has reconciled each of us individually to Himself, but even more so, even more so, we and Jesus. We and Jesus, the King. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, he writes in verse 19. For the Ephesian church, he's speaking to Gentiles who were, since the very beginning, outsiders, outsiders and outcasts with regards to God's promises and power and grace. He was, they were cut off, right, and cast away, separated and without hope and without God in this world. That's Paul's words. Exactly where each of us have found ourselves prior to Christ. Precisely where everyone who remains defiant against God and unrepentant and refuses to believe and receive His grace without God in this world. But now, Paul writes, consequently, being brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13, we are no longer foreigners and strangers. We are citizens. Fellow citizens with God's people. We are part of a kingdom. That's a political term. A national term that comes with rights and privileges. That's what would have come to mind when they heard the word citizen. I don't know about us, 2023 in the United States of America, but, but back then, you heard kingdom, you heard citizen, you thought rights and privileges. We are citizens. We aren't outsiders. We're not 
being tolerated. We are attached to a commonwealth. We have a homeland because we are citizens. We aren't aliens. We have more than just proper paperwork. We belong. We are a part. We are the kingdom. A kingdom of people. A, a territory and a property that belongs to a king. Where rules and his reign spread where he grants and provides and he welcomes and he protects where there are borders and defenses. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. We aren't an army of one, Ephesians 6. We're not an army of one. We enjoy the blessings of order and definition rather than chaos. In this kingdom, people have been given a new way of living. Amen, right? We are called to live in a different, a new way, rather than each of us attempting to be a king of one, which no one has obeyed you. <laughs> it hasn't been working out so well. Instead, we obey one, we obey Jesus. Who is the king? One, one author puts it this way. He writes, Christ cannot be the head without a body. Right? Christ cannot be a head without a body. He cannot be a king without a kingdom. He cannot be a mediator without his people. He cannot be a redeemer without his church. The Father validated the work of Christ by raising him from the dead. Right? Seating him on the throne and giving him a body, i.e. the church. And then this is what he writes. The church is irrefutable evidence of Christ's complete and effective atonement for his people. How, how is it that we have evidence of His complete and effective atonement for His people? He has a kingdom. And it's made up of people like you and me who once were rebels, now subjects. Glad subjects of a good king. Oh, th this is what you observe when you step back and inspect what it is that we have become citizens of. Thousands upon thousands of years now, God's people all over the planet organized into small, small expressions of a greater reality of a growing, 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 growing kingdom. There is a universal church that includes, this is what theologians say, all the redeemed throughout all of time. We call, this, we call that the invisible church, for no one but God can see the invisible church can see all of it alone, discern which part of it really is it, who, is, who his church truly is in totality. It's invisible to us. But the visible church, the local church, is us. And every, every other true church hidden away in neighborhoods and small towns and big cities, here in Orange, down in Santa Ana, down to San Diego, across the nation, and overseas, the ones we will never see, those little local churches, small little expressions visible to the naked eye, if we are there and present, living and loving and serving and sacrificing and preaching and evangelizing and welcoming in every refugee who has been reconciled and ransomed and brought home by the King as they proclaim the Gospel, that's the visible church, the local church, and that's our homeland as citizens.
That's our homeland. She's our country. She's our city. She's our nation, first and foremost. If, if Satan were to float a spy balloon across, <laughs> you know how to say it. I mean, that's like a preacher's like dream come true this week, if you don't know. Supposedly, maybe China floated a balloon over the United States to check out the weather in Montana, where all our nuclear missiles are. <laughs> you betcha we'd shoot it down. <laughs> America. <laughs> no, the church. <laughs> no, but America too. That was fun. And why did they shoot it off just like five miles off the coast? They could have waited 20, 30 miles so no one would get hit, but no one could see it then. We had to see this thing get shot down. Listen, we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Listen, yet as good as it is to be a citizen, as good as it is to be a citizen, it's even better to be family. Family. Paul, Paul's piling them on here now. Point number two, we are family. Look with me again at our text, verse 19. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Stop right there. We are God's children. He is our Father. That's the Christian name for God. J.I. Packer. Father. Jesus is our brother. We get everything he gets, we get as well. He's our brother that has gone out and brought us in. Our fellow churchmen and churchwomen aren't just members of our same local church. They're brothers and sisters. That's a theological statement. We are family. We are adopted. <laughs> We are co-heirs with, co with Christ. We are no longer guests or even at one level servants. We are family. We are family. And what is a family? <laughs> what should a family be? And of course, this is where everything good has been distorted and corrupted by our sin in this world. But what is a family fundamentally? It's a place of refuge protection a safe harbor that's the local churches a social structure listen a social structure designed by God to eliminate any question you might have about your inclusion and belonging and commitment amongst us we're a clan gathered together from every nation tribe and tongue we are a tribe we have an identity we have a family name and with it comes a loyalty a bond that, that's what Paul means here when he says that we're members of a household, God's household. There's a, a bond between us, you and me and every other Christian whom God sends our way, especially when it comes to the visible local church like our church and churches like us. There is a bond that is, if I'm speaking with theological precision, there is a bond between the members of a local church that is thicker than blood. It's thicker than blood. 
We are the family of God. Is this how you see us? Listen, is this how you see us? If you step back just for a moment and look at what the church is, it's a family. I know for so many of us it is, and that in no way means that we don't love our biological families, not at all. In fact, get this, get this, if you get this right, that what is happening here, this reality, the church is a family. You'll love your biological adopted whatever, however it happened, social structural unit even more. But it will never supersede. This is Jesus' own words. This will never supersede. For us, the wonder of being included, our inclusion in the household of the Almighty. Look around. Look around by grace. These are your people. That's what Paul's saying. These are your people. you got other people, but these are your people. Give yourself to them. It's an invitation. Thank God for them. You have people. You're not homeless. You have brothers and sisters. You have pastors and deacons and teachers and small group leaders and counselors. Most likely, this will be the closest we get. Most likely, for most of us, we could say, this will be the closest we get to a family that is not broken. By God's grace. Doesn't mean we're perfect. First, Paul writes in verse 20, this family, verse 20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I, I have a family. I have a family. And I, and I hope I'm building it on a different cornerstone. If it's being measured and lined out by me and my life, it's in trouble. This family has the chief cornerstone. Jesus. Uh, as another author, one, an author puts it, like the members of our biological family, we haven't chosen them for ourselves. Amen. Amen. We didn't choose each other. But they have ch been chosen for us. God has chosen your family members for us. And we are therefore inseparably bound to them. Because we are allied with Christ. We are allied with His family. Our family loyalty ought to make things like disunity unthinkable. It will always increase our obligations and decrease our independence just as belonging to any family would and could. The church, he writes, is not a man-made society that we can participate in like the PA, PTA or opt out of according to our own level of comfort and preferences. That, right, he writes, the PTA, the Neighborhood Association or the Library Booster Club, do, they do not obligate us to personal sacrifice when things get tough. Family does. Because God's people are our family, we will hold our own preferences and priorities loosely. We will open our hearts and our doors. We will pull up another chair to the dinner table and add another name to our prayer list. We will give them our groceries and furniture and smiles. And you do this. Oh, you do this. We will share their grief and trials and disappointments. We will look for ways to show love. You do this. As a result, we will expect to have less money. That's true of all of us. Less free time. Amen than we would have if we were on our own. This is what he writes. We will expect to have added sorrows. If you've been close enough to a church, a local church, not just the church, dot com, right? but 
a church like ours, wherever church is, you get close enough and, and the pastoral team, we start getting the questions. We have someone going, Pastor Eric, Eric, Dustin, Mike, hey, hey, did you notice something's going on? Saint, Saint must be under attack. There's something going wrong. Everybody is suffering and has trials and needy is neat. And it's welcome to your first rodeo as a member of a local church. We expect, if you're a member of a family, you expect to have added sorrows. And I love how he ends. We also expect to have great joy. We all expect to have great joy. That's a family. <laughs> Yet, oh, listen, if, if being a citizen isn't enough and a family isn't better, consider that you are part of, bigger than something, part of something bigger than yourself. We are a temple. Best of yet. We are a temple. Look at verse 21 very briefly. In Him, the whole body, verse 21, is joined together, right? And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. What is the church? What, if, what, what are we if not a sample-sized microcosm, Right? of the much, a much larger reality than ourselves even as a visible local congregation. The, the, maybe, maybe this is what it is. The very thing, a model of the very thing, the, a micro, microcosm of the very thing this entire world is hurtling towards in time and space. A temple to house God Himself where God and man will dwell together. He's ransoming for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A new man. A new humanity. Consider again, that's what's happening here. That's what it means when you signed your name and said, I'm a part of, I commit to, by God's grace, all these things as a local church. <laughs> consider. Consider viewing us as God views us. Herman Bavnik, you never hear me quote him, but Herman Bavnik, he wrote this. The history of the human race began with a wedding. It's true, right? Adam and Eve. The history of the human race began with a wedding. And here's where all of history is heading. And it also ends with a wedding. It also ends with a wedding. The wedding of Christ and the church of the heavenly Lord with His earthly bride. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, the whole world was created so that, listen, the whole world was created so that the eternal Son of God might have a and obtain a spouse. Listen, this is where it's at. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A family that can't be broken. A temple that cannot be destroyed. A temple that cannot be destroyed. God has made His home among us, the church. And like a temple, here we have unrestrained, unrestricted access to Him. His presence is felt and experienced even by the guest, even by the one who doesn't know the Lord. Oftentimes you could say, but you knew He was with us. There's power at work in us. His purpose is being realized one by one by congregation by congregation. Again, I'm not saying that we are all that it should be. We're not. But I am saying that when we consider who it is that the church is, we see a miniature model of the entire whole. Start to finish the very purpose and meaning of everything. 
Christianity invites us into something that just changes everything. Not just my relationship with God, but with everything. Let me quote a little more of Herman Badnick for you. Listen, he writes, For Christians, the future is portrayed entirely different than for those without any faith in any revelation. He writes, For apart from revelation, the origin, existence, purpose, and destiny of the human race is entirely unknown to us. Because without this knowledge, we cannot live and cannot die, cannot think and cannot labor. The Christian faith is replaced by arbitrary guesses and the Christian hope by vain expectations. He writes, people then dream of a future state that will rise automatically through evolution in which everyone will live happily and contentedly. But in this case, it's like a hungry man dreaming that he was eaten. But when he awakens, his soul is empty. Man, that was my story. Or like a thirsty man dreaming that he was drinking. But when he's awakened, he is still parched and his soul is thirsty. Christians know about other and better things. They do not look back to the past with homesickness. For even then, it's not everything that glittered was gold and not everything that glittered was gold. They do not surrender. Christians do not surrender their hearts to the present for their eyes see the suffering that belongs inseparably to the present time, not the future. And they do not fantasize about a perfect society because in this life and this age, sin will continue to hold sway and will constantly corrupt all that is good. But... And oh, here's what we are experiencing as we grow into the temple of God. But we are assured that God's purpose with the human race will nevertheless be attained despite all the conflict involved. Humanity and the world exist after all for the sake of the church. The church isn't peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. And the church exists for the sake of Christ's will. And Christ belongs to God. That's Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. He, he writes, Humanity and the world exist, after all, for the sake of the church. In the city of God, the creation reaches its final goal. Listen to how he ends. He says, Into that city, here's what's being built, and we're experiencing it now, but then, he says, Into that city, all the treasures will be brought together that have been acquired by humanity in the course of time through fearsome conflict. And that includes things like chat, GPT, and stuff. All those fearful conflict. All the things acquired by humanity in the course of time. All the glory of the nations will be gathered there. And in the spiritual association of Christ with His church, even marriage will reach its end. We are the temple of God. God's very presence, His Spirit residing amongst us. And that's why it's so beautiful when we're all together. As an outpost behind enemy lines, displaying the manifold wisdom of God by saving 
and reconciling, sending, gathering together, providing for, caring, nurturing, like a nursery, healing, like a hospital, proclaiming. Proclaiming the glory of our founder and cornerstone himself, Jesus. I know we ain't perfect. J.I. Packer writes, the church is a hospital in which no one is completely well and anyone can relapse at any time. (laughs) (laughs) Starting with me. But still, would God help us? Would God help us to love the church for who the church is? Not for what the church does for me and you and us. Though those things are wonderful. But just for what it is. And may that then, oh, may our love for what God is doing in this age, on this planet, and in this room, and in our city, through Sovereign Grace Church of Orange, may it only compel us to give all the more everything we have, that more would join us in enjoying what is to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for counting us, counting us among your children for welcoming us in and giving us all the rights and the privileges of one who belongs in your kingdom, giving us the strength and the power through the work of your Spirit that we might obey you and please you and serve you and serve your purposes. And Father, most of all, we are grateful for your presence at work among us and in us as we display you and your glory. Oh Lord, Complete your work in us. We're confident that you won't leave us where we are, but individually and corporately we would grow up in maturity that together we and our Savior might tell the whole world, tell the whole world of the riches of your grace for all who will believe and receive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.